Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Ross. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Today, we are speaking with Bob Pretty. If you've listened to the Missouri Net over the past 40-plus years, you will certainly recognize his voice. For his substantial career in radio journalism, Pretty was inducted into the Missouri Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame in 2018. He is also a noted author with several books to his credit, including Only the Rivers Are Peaceful, The Taos Connection, and Across Our Wide Missouri. Since 2016, he has served as the president of the Board of Trustees for the State Historical Society of Missouri. His most recent book, The Art of the Missouri Capital, was a collaborative effort with Jeffrey Ball and was published in 2011. In it, Pretty and Ball provide an expansive overview of the present Missouri State Capitol building from the destruction of its predecessor by lightning in 1911 to the contemporary efforts to preserve its pristine existence along the banks of the Missouri River. Along the way, the authors offer the reader a well-researched story of the Capitol's construction, adjoined by stunning photographs and images that document the building's rich history. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Bob Pretty. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Could you tell us about the origins of your book? What drew you to write a book about the Missouri State Capitol? Well, working in the Capitol for 40 years as a reporter certainly gives you an idea of some things to write about or think about as you wander the halls and you appreciate the great artwork there and the history that is made there every day. And so sooner or later, you start to think about a book, or I started to think about a book. And the original plan was to write a book about the history of the construction and the decoration of the Capitol. And my co-author, Jeff Ball, and I sat down and started working on this. And some of the antecedents of this we'll talk about a little bit later. But I started to write the the thing. And by the time we got to a 1,000 pages of the manuscript, we realized that there's an awful lot we were not including yet, a lot of holes in the stories that we hadn't researched yet. And if we took it to a publisher and tried to boil everything down to fit into a 450-page book, we were going to leave out an awful lot of the stories of either the construction or the decoration. And so I made the decision at that point that we were going to do a book about the artwork first, because that's the thing people see most often when they come to the Capitol. That's the thing they remember. And so we went to work then on plugging all of the gaps we had to plug and uh, and going to work on, on gathering the research that we needed to research to do the artwork. And finally, the, the result was uh, the Art of the Missouri Capitol that came out in 2011. Were there any organizations or individuals who gave you support for the overall project? Well, the State Historical Society, of course, is a, is a main resource for us. And um, there were other places that we went to that, that gave us a lot of information. The Archives of American Art in Washington, D.C. were most helpful. Uh, but in terms of any financial support uh, while we were doing this, no, this was all done on our own initiative. The largest part of the book uh, was material that I researched and wrote. Uh, Jeff's main contribution was his master's thesis, which was about the, the murals of the Capitol. And there's no way the book could have been done without his study about the murals. 
and the way that as a as an art historian himself that he was able to properly phrase the various parts of that story so the book is partly his master's thesis and then a lot of it is research that we either discovered or fell through the transmontus in various ways during the time uh, or that we already had done for some time in the years before. Now, if someone were to visit the Capitol today, they'd find a lot of scaffolding and construction work due to the kind of ongoing uh, kind of maintenance and repairs that are going to be over several years. Um, thinking back to your project and in your book on kind of the construction and the artwork of the Capitol, if someone were to walk to the Capitol grounds, say in 1918, 100 years ago, what would it have looked like to that person? 1918, it would have looked very similar to the way it looks now because the building would have been completed by then. Now, some of the decorations, some of the statuary and the fountains and things like that were installed over a period of years for the next decade until about 1928. So this person in 1918 would probably not see Ceres on the dome, uh, would not see some of the statuary of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, uh, would probably not see the fountains in the front yard unless they had a vision of some kind. They certainly wouldn't see the things around and back on the on the, the riverside that we now have have, including the, the, the pool and the Fountain of the Centaurs and the, the signing of the Treaty Statuary and, and the Veterans Memorial and the Police Memorial and even the Liberty Bell. All of those things are fairly late in, in the development of the decorations of the Capitol. But they would see, if they went there in 1918, they would see the building. Uh, they would see that the landscaping was not complete. In fact, they might get stuck in the mud. Uh, the road around the Capitol would be different, especially in the, in the south front of the Capitol, instead of the circular driveway on the south front that mirrors the circular driveway on the north side, the riverside, uh, there would have been a, a, a driveway that came up from the west and formed a little keyhole loop, and then the street that ran right in front of the steps of the Capitol, which was originally Stewart Street in Jefferson City. And people would park their cars with their noses right up against the front steps of the Capitol for many years until that circular drive was put in in the 1960s. So that would be a big difference that people would notice. They would In 1918, they would see old Model Ts and Chevrolets and, and, and cars like that parked with their noses up against the uh, up against against the steps. They'd also see a lot of smoke because Jefferson City was a, a coal-fired town. The railroad was right below it, so there was a lot of, of train smoke that came up. And so it would be a, a situation where the air would be quite a bit dirtier. So, so what they would see uh, would be a capital that was getting dirty sooner, and they would be breathing that same air. Now, scholars are able to produce books and articles on historical topics because of access to key documents on specific subjects. <laughs> Yet, as you point out in your book, the records of the Capitol Decoration Commission have over time disappeared. Right. Uh, what happened to them, and how were you able to locate information about the commission's work? Well, if we knew what happened, to them, we'd be able to find them. <laughs> but um, that was the biggest hurdle we had. That's why it took 10 years to write the book, because we had to go out and scope out the various resources that we were that we had to look at. Um, it, and so some of these things were just things that we stumbled across by accident, and some of them were, were done by detective work. You know, you just you, you pick something, you pick a thread, and you follow that thread and see where it takes you. And that's what we had to do with a lot of these things. There, there are some files in St. Louis, uh, some of the letters... Uh, to one of the commissioners, the decoration commissioners are in his files at the uh, Missouri Historical Society, I think in Washington University. And so we started out with, with those letters, which weren't really very detailed, but that was the start. And over a period of time, we came across places where we found other letters and, and other references. I uh, we, One of the places that I talked to was, uh, one of the places I visited was the Archives of American Art in Washington that I mentioned earlier, because they have a lot of the personal papers of several of the artists 
artists and sculptors that decorated the Capitol. And once we got into those, we were able to get a fairly a good idea of what was going on. But some of these things were just completely fortuitous. And the prime example of that is is uh, the Frank Brangwen material. He was the one who painted the, the murals in the rotunda on the first floor and the third floor and clear up in the eye of the dome. We were afraid that we were going to, one of us at least, was going to have to go to London because that's where he lived and worked and dig around in his papers there. But one day I was working in the Capitol covering the state Senate as a reporter and it just so happened that during the lunch hour, when I was down in my press room on the first floor, that was the precise time that one of the Capitol tour guides brought a little old man into the room, and he was from London, and he'd come to see the Brangwen murals. This fellow turned out to be the son of Brangwen's top aide who helped him paint those murals. And he had just transcribed his father's journals into a book, which he just happened to have and gave me. So all of a sudden, we had prime research material on the creation of this third floor murals. Now, we didn't have the first floor yet, but we knew that Alan True, an artist from Denver, had been a student of Brangwen's before World War I. And we checked the archives of American art, and we learned that True had gone to England in about 1923, I think it was, because True had a contract to paint 16 small paintings in the third floor small dome areas. And so he went over to England to help have Brangwen help him with these works, but also to help Brangwen with his first floor paintings. And he spent a year over there with his family. And he wrote letters back to his mother in Denver. And those letters were at the archives in Washington. So now we had the first-hand reports, the first-hand experience of how the first-floor murals were created. And it's one of the, it's one of the more, uh, more human stories of the whole book because at the end of the year, he, True, wrote to his mother and said that he and his family were headed home because he had some commissions with the Nebraska capital and at the, uh, the Colorado capital, his home state. And he needed to get home and start taking care of those. And he wrote that he hoped to stop by Brangwen's house on the way home to Southampton, where they were going to take the seven-day boat to New York. And he hoped to see Brangwen to say goodbye, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to because Mrs. Brangwen was very ill and he was by her bedside. Now, we don't know if they saw each other, but we do know that the day the boat sailed from Southampton, Mrs. Brangwen died. And in March, the following March, True gets a telegram from Brangwen that says he has completed the Missouri paintings and they are being shipped to the Capitol. And uh, he would like he would like True to go to Jefferson City and help put up the murals. And then he said something like, "Normally, when I finish a great commission, there is some there, uh, there is someone I can celebrate with, but there is no one now. And sometimes I wish I could join my late wife." And this was 1924. He lived another 17 years or so. But it was a very human touch to this. This story of the artwork. And that's one of the things we wanted to do with the book was not just talk about the artwork and what the artwork portrayed. We want to talk about how the artwork was created. And we also want people to know who read this book, who these artists were, because we've forgotten who these artists were as in American art right now. But in their time, these artists and sculptors were among the foremost artists and sculptors in America, if not in the world, like Brangwen. And so this was, this was a huge thing that was going on in Missouri. We were hiring the nation's best people to decorate our building. That's because we had a million dollars left over from the bond issue. The building cost four million. We had a million left for the decoration. No other capital in America 
has 20% of its cost invested in the decoration of the building. And that's why ours is, is considered to be one of the great buildings when it comes to decoration uh, in, in the whole country, one of the great capitals. So we had 20% of our total cost that we could spend on the decoration. Most of the images uh, of your book include wonderful photographs and images related to the capital and those who worked on its construction, decorations, artwork, and sculptures. Where did you access a lot of these photographs? And uh, what are some good collections that you found along the way that really gave information for you? The Archives of America. American art provided a lot of illustrative pictures of these artists. Uh, there were some places where we went to the Rotogravure sections of a, of a newspaper. Now, the Rotogravure sections of newspapers were, were special sections uh, printed on paper that doesn't hold up well over time, but there was high quality paper, so you got high quality photographic reproductions. And so when you go to the Rotogravure sections of newspapers, you can, you can take photographs of that picture on their page and you get a pretty good photographic image that you normally wouldn't get in a newspaper in those days. So there were some things where you went to that, uh, but mostly it was from the Archives of American Art or uh, we went to the, the hometowns of some of these artists uh, and, and checked in with various sources there to see who would have a photograph of them. Um, sometimes we just simply went to the internet and Googled them and looked at the Google images. And if it was a public domain image, we had we could get that. If it wasn't, we wrote a way to get permission from some people to publish something. Uh, the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis had a couple of pictures that we used. They, they gave us permission to do that for a little fee, but it wasn't bad. So we just went to a lot of different places uh, to find what we, what we could scrounge together. The color pictures were done by Lloyd Grotjohn, who's a Jefferson City photographer who runs Full Spectrum Photo in Jefferson City. And he did, he was hired by the state capital, by the second capital commission, as it was called in those days. It has since lost the second designation. But he was hired to do architectural photography of the building and to, to photograph all of these pictures. And so the color pictures that you see in this book, for the most part of the artwork, are Lloyd's. And that was the first time anybody had ever really done high quality photography work of these pictures, which was interesting because I learned many years ago when I went around and just took some pictures myself just for a, a little lecture I was going to give here or there, that the halls were so dark that there are things you don't see unless you take a picture. And then you can properly illuminate the picture and all of a sudden details come out that you otherwise wouldn't notice. So that's that's what we did. We just chased down pictures wherever we had to go. Uh, there were some Brangwen pictures that we took out. There was one Brangwen picture especially that we took out of a book that Brangwen wrote that came out uh, in about 1920 or 24. And that was a picture of him uh, sitting on the scaffolding next to one of the great big figures in the third floor mural upstairs. So that you got an idea of how big the head of this figure was compared to Brangwen, who was sitting next to it. You don't get an idea just how large some of these figures are because you're standing 20 or 25 feet below them and looking up. And so your perspective is much different. But it's only when you see him next to one of these figures that you understand how big everything was that he was working on. It was, his paintings in the Capitol are just amazing to me. Most of the paintings in there are on flat surfaces, but Brangwen's murals are so large, and then he's working on a double curve. He's working on a curve vertically and a curve horizontally, plus he's working at, at to put pictures up in an elevation, so he has to distort the image of the that's on the that's on his canvas so that it looks normal to the people who are looking at it from a long distance down below. And 
I, you know, as, as someone who is not an artist, I, I just find that process amazing that he did that. And they're such stunning pictures. Now, as someone comes into Jefferson City, especially from the east going west on Highway 50, they'll pass by an exit for Taos, Missouri, which is mm-hmm. not too far outside of Jefferson City. But yet there's a larger connection to the community of Taos, New Mexico for the Missouri State Capitol mm-hmm. building. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the New Mexico artists that worked on the Capitol? Well, that's one of the first things that I got curious about. Uh, when I started working at the Capitol, well, I went to Jefferson City in 1967, and, and I'd been there earlier. Our senior class at Sullivan High School in Illinois, instead of going to New York or New Orleans or Washington, D.C. for their senior trip, we went to Kirkwood Lodge at the Lake of the Ozarks. And on the way home, we stopped at the Missouri Capitol, and we took a tour. And, of course, everybody remembers going into the house lounge for the Benton Mural. And so when I came to work here in Jefferson City in 67, um, one of the first things I did was go to the Capitol. And of course, I went to the House Lounge, but I started to circulate through the halls and just enjoy the paintings. And I got a copy of the 1928 final report of the Decoration Commission. It was published in a hardback book. It lacked a lot of the details, of course, that we put in our book. But nonetheless, I noticed that an awful lot of the lunettes, especially on the second floor, were done by artists from Taos, New Mexico. And I thought, now, why did we hire all these guys from New Mexico? In 1984, when I was visiting my sister-in-law and her family in Albuquerque, I decided I was going to go to Taos and see if I could find some of the children of these artists. And I found two of them. And I had wonderful interviews with these two girls, these two women, who were by then in their 70s. And um, as I dug around even more and more, I, it turned out that, that I found a story or something, and maybe it was something one of the women told me, that... Arthur Koshin, who was on the commission and was a noted art dealer in St. Louis with the Noonan Koshin Art Gallery, uh, was good friends of Oscar Burninghouse, who displayed his works at the museum, at the gallery. And Burninghouse was one of the founders of the Taos Society of Artists because he'd been hired by the Santa Fe Railroad many years before to go down to the Southwest and do paintings of the Southwest for the Santa Fe Railroad calendar. And he wound up in Taos with a few of the other artists from back East. And he fell in love with the area. And if anybody who's ever been to Taos knows that it's, it's a stunningly beautiful part of New Mexico. And it's clear air, clean air, and it's just ideal for painting. And uh, one day, uh, John Picard, who was the chairman of the commission, the Art Decoration Commission, was talking to Burning House, as the story goes, as I think the story goes, and he mentioned that they were looking for some people who could paint Indians because Indians had such an important role in early Missouri history. And Burning House said, well, if you're looking for people who can paint Indians, why don't you come to Taos? Because there's a whole colony of people down there that paint Indians, because this is right next to the Taos Pueblo. And so there are a lot of Indians. And so all of these artists did a lot of painting of Indians. So Picard went down there and met with the Taos Society of Artists, and he hired all of them but one, to paint paintings for the Capitol. And he was so taken by Taos that he bought a house just across the street from Ernest Blumenschein, who was one of the Taos artists that was hired, and he moved down there. And his daughter lived there and was born there and was raised there and, and lived in Taos. So uh, all of a sudden, I find there's this link between the how, how we got the link together with the Taos Society of Artists. Well, then it was a matter of checking newspapers, and I got access to uh, the, the Taos newspaper collection down there. 
Center. And we were able to run down a number of articles about his visit and then the Taos artists signing their contracts and um, uh, the, the working the progression of when they finished their paintings and brought them up here and put them in place. So we got that part of it taken care of pretty well. I met the granddaughter of one of the artists, uh, E.I. Kaus, who still operates the Kaus Museum and Studio in Taos. You can go through it, and she's still there. And we got to talking a couple of times, and she, one of the things that she mentioned was how important the capital project was for the Taos artists, because in those times, Taos was still a fairly unknown art community, and as still is the case in many respects these days, uh, if it's if it's art work that is produced west of the Alleghenies, it's just not worth art. In fact, Picard complained when he was setting up, the, going to work on the commission, that his main complaint was that there were too many artists who were, who were not tall enough to see over the Alleghenies. Well, anyway, so um, I was I was talking to the, the Virginia Kaus-Levitt was her name, and she mentioned that most of these artists made very little money. And so being able to do 20-some paintings for the Missouri Capitol and exhibit them all over the place before they came to the capital was just a, first of all, a major economic boom for them because they were getting $1,000 per painting when some of them were only making $1,000 a year before that. And plus the publicity that they were getting called a lot of attention to the Taos Society of Artists and that helped that society grow and, and, and prosper. And some of these guys turned out to do very, very well. And some of their paintings are worth you know, six figures now. Uh, but that, that all, this capital project turned out to be a great impetus for the Taos Society. Society of Artists. And so I wound up talking to children and grandchildren of some of these artists and then piecing together newspaper articles. And there'd been books written about them too. So I got into some of that. But that's how we put together the story of the Taos artists. In fact, sometime in the mid 80s, uh, I gave I gave the speech at the annual meeting about the Taos artists. And it was published in the Missouri Historical Review. And somebody read it in Taos and sent me a note and said, you left out some stuff. <laughs> so he sent me, he sent me a little book that he'd written which was the minutes of the Taos Society of Artists meetings and game and steered me in some other directions to pick up more information. So all of that went into files that eventually went into the book. And you mentioned paintings and, and certainly the Taos community that really benefited from this, this work. And for anyone who visits the Capitol, there is one kind of piece of artwork that is very central. And those, uh, of course, is the Thomas Hart Ben mural in the house lounge. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of how that came to be? Yeah, I wrote a book about that one too. <laughs> this was a long time time ago, this was back in the eight, in, in 89, I think I wrote a book called Only the Rivers Are Peaceful, the Missouri mural of Thomas Hart Benton. Well, of course, since that's the mural everybody remembers, that's something that uh, that you want to think about when you want to write about the artwork of the Capitol. A friend of mine named Jim Bogan at, at what was then the University of Missouri Rolla, now the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Uh, Jim Bogan was a student of Tom Benton, and Jim Bogan was also good friends of a, of a fellow from Boonville who was a folk singer uh, who, who sang songs about Benton. And he also was friends with a professor at the University of Missouri, Rolla, who also did some lectures on, on Thomas Hart Benton. So Bogan put together a series of uh, three of us and got underwriting from um, the Missouri Council for the Humanities or the Missouri Council for the Arts. I don't remember what. And for two years, the three of us went around to three different cities each year, three different universities each year, and did lectures about Thomas Hart Benton. And my choice was the Benton Mural. The reason that I was able to do the Benton Mural was because not long after I moved to Jefferson City, I got to know the mayor of Jefferson City very well, and his name was John G. Christie. John G. Christie was the first man to serve more than two terms as Speaker of the House of Representatives. He served three terms out of the four that he was in the legislature, served three terms as Speaker. He was the Speaker when Benton 
was hired to paint the mural. And he was telling me one day that he hated that mural. And in fact, uh, he was telling me that one day before the start of the 1937 session, because the mural was finished in December 36, and although he was the Speaker of the House and was supposedly kind of in charge, he lived in Festus and there wasn't any reason to come to Jefferson City between sessions. So he hadn't really seen it until he walked in there just before the legislative session started. And this lounging room, a room where people were supposed to be able to go and rest and smoke and take naps and play cards or just talk to get away from the hurly-burly of the House floor, he knew could never be a place of relaxation again because, as he put it, these figures were just jumping off the wall at you. And he told me that the day before the session started, he was having breakfast at a hotel and the majority floor leader walked in and Christy, who was about 6'2 and had one of these booming voices, he was one of these guys who once he starts rolling, you can't get him to shut up until he takes a breath. So he saw the majority floor leader and flagged him over to his table and he said, Morris, have you seen those damnable paintings in the house lounge? And the floor leader immediately got flustered. And Christie started going on about it. He says, those are the worst things I've ever seen. When we go into session this morning, I want you to introduce a, a resolution to have it painted over. And and the floor leader got really nervous and he was really starting to shake. And Christie kept rolling. And finally, Christie stopped to take a breath. And at that point, the floor leader walked over and grabbed me by the front of the shirt. And he said, Mr. Speaker. Don't you know that Mr. Benton is sitting right behind you? <laughs> and he was. And, you know, Benton was only about five feet four. And so standing up, he was about as tall as Christie was sitting down. About that time, Christie said a sweet young thing came into the restaurant and saw Benton and hustled over to the table and said, oh, Mr. Benton, I've just been to the Capitol. I've seen your painting. It's the most wonderful painting I've ever seen in my life. Can I have your autograph? Christie said he never looked at her. He got up and he came over and he stood next to Christie's chair and he said, young lady, I have heard some comments about art from somebody who knows nothing about the subject and if he studied the rest of his life would know even less. And he stormed out of the room and didn't come back for 25 years. Well, the resolution, I think, was, uh, was never passed, of course. And you know, Benton always said he knew they'd never pass the resolution because they weren't going to admit they paid $16,000 for such a mistake. But he, for about the next year or so, defended that mural from all kinds of critics. And I think he really loved to defend it because most of his critics were not nearly the intellect that Tom Benton was. But uh, that was 1936 when that, that mural was completed. And it still speaks to people today with the social history of Missouri. And that's that's why it was important. It was a social history. He didn't try to write a political history, paint a political history or paint a military history. It's a social history of Missouri. So it's a story of people and the movement of people through the decades to make Missouri what it is today. And uh, it's a much broader topic. If, you, if, if you're talking to everybody with this painting, you're not just talking to those who are interested in politics. You're not just talking to those who are interested in military history. You're talking about the history of all of the people of the state of Missouri in this one painting. And uh, so that's that's the kind of thing he was working on, was, was something that represented all of Missouri, not just a part of it. And he got a lot of static for a, a, a naked baby, uh, for uh, some dancing girls uh, at, a, at a Kansas City businessmen's meeting. Uh, he included Tom Pendergast, the great political boss of Kansas City, who at that time was starting to run into trouble with the government. And Jesse James is in there. And there's slavery portrayed in there. And a lot of people thought these are things that we shouldn't really have in a mural glorifying our state. And Benton really said he was not interested in glorifying the state. He was interested in portraying the history of the people of the state. And as he put it, you cannot tell the truth of history unless you tell it warts and all. And so that's why we have some, some parts of the mural that uh, a lot of people questioned at that time. Christie never did admit that it's a great painting. He did finally admit that other people, including his sister, could think it was a great painting, but he never could. Now, as someone who has visited nearly every corner of the Capitol building over mm -hmm. your 50 plus year career there, uh, what is your favorite piece of artwork? Oh, you're trying to ask, you're trying to ask me who's my favorite child. Um, 
You know, I don't, I've been asked this question quite often, and I don't know whether it is the artwork or whether it is the story behind the artwork that I like so much. I mean, it's hard to beat the Brangwen story that I talked to you about earlier. Um, In in terms of uh, just art, I think it's difficult to beat N.C. Wyeth's paintings of the Battle of Wilson's Creek and the Battle of Westport. N.C. Wyeth was the nation's foremost magazine illustrator at this time, and he was a master of the use of light and shadow and smoke and clouds, and especially the Wilson's Creek battle uh, shows that mastery. He wrote his mother, and I came across a book of his letters while I was doing all of this. Well, actually, before I was doing all of this, but the book contains several letters that he wrote his mother while he was painting these two paintings. And he also described the day that he came to the Capitol to put them on the wall, and they had an art day to de- dedicate the paintings. But he said in his letters, one of his letters to his mother, that he thought this commission could change his life, could change his career, because he would be moving from being simply an illustrator to being an artist, to being a, an easel artist. And I started looking at a list of his works after that, and it did, because before this, he was predominantly illustrating magazine and books. And after this, he did very little of that, but did an awful lot of easel paintings. And it was almost a complete reversal. It was two-to-one illustration before, two-to-one easel paintings afterwards. But uh, I think from strictly the pure artistic impact, the Battle of Wilson's Creek would be my favorite piece of work in that building. I think it's only rivaled by Frank Nudisher's painting of the Artery of Trade, which is the Eads Bridge, which uh, it was painted from the East St. Louis side, showing the Eads Bridge. And it's, it's just a really powerful image uh, that has, you know, among other things, it's, a, it's, it's a, a painting where the bridge turns directions on you as you walk past it. And, but still, it's just a very powerful image of basically the East driving its way across the Mississippi River into the West. There's a counterpart across the gallery of from Kansas City, looking from Kansas City toward Kansas, and it's much more peaceful. In the eastern, in the eastern painting of of, uh, of Nudisher, the east is powerfully coming into the west, and then across the gallery, you see that the ripples from all of that have expanded now out to Kansas City, and you're standing on a bluff in Kansas City, looking across the river at Kansas, and the west is beckoning and saying. Don't stop now. Keep coming. So you have these two these two paintings, but the the Eads Bridge one is especially powerful. Now, in the third floor rotunda, there are a series of bronze busts that have been done over the mm-hmm. years that make up what is called the Hall of Famous Missourians. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the people featured in that hall and some people you think should be featured in that hall? Well, yeah, the uh, the Hall of Famous Missourians, I was in on the, the founding of the Hall of Famous Missourians to a degree, I guess. The Hall of Famous Missourians originated with some women who were wives of members of the legislature, and they felt that the Capitol needed some new artwork. There hadn't been anything new put in the building since the 1950s when William Knox did three lunettes. And so they thought something new needed to be added, and they they decided to have some gridiron shows. Now, the gridiron shows are you know, they kind of like they do in Washington, D.C. sometimes. They're shows where there are various acts and skits put on by various groups, and they kind of satirize what's going on in state government. So the, the House would have a skit, and the Senate would have a skit, and the governor's office would have one. The press corps had one. So I was in on the press corps stuff, and the first time we did that, there were two or three of those held, I think. And so we did We did the three of them and raised enough money to commission four busts by Bill Williams, William J. Williams. And so there, that's how it all started. People are surprised when they visit the Hall of Famous Missourians to see who the famous Missourians are. Nobody realizes that um, you know, Thomas Hart Benton and, and Mark Twain and, uh, and, and somebody like that, yeah, they don't realize 
others, though. There are others who are in the Hall of Fame as Missourians people don't think about. Walter Cronkite is in there, the famous CBS correspondent. Uh, Betty Grable, uh, Ginger Rogers, Marlon Perkins, who had a television show called The Wild Kingdom, sponsored by Mutual of Omaha for many years. He was from St. Louis. Um, uh, uh, Hubble, for whom the Hubble Telescope is named, uh, is is in there. He was from, from southwest Missouri. Laura Ingalls Wilder is in there. Uh, Emmett Kelly, the great clown, is in there, along with Joyce Hall of Hallmark Cards, James S. McDonald of McDonnell Douglas Aircraft, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the nation's foremost 20th century philosophers, John G. Nyhart, who was one of my professors here and was one of those who really changed my life, I think. He was an epic poet who wrote about the American West, and I took his course and changed my whole focus on history. As an Illinois boy growing up on the Civil War in Abraham Lincoln, all of a sudden, I had the course under Nyhart, which was a poetry course about the American West and development of the American West, the same semester that I had Lewis Atherton's course, who was a former president of the Historical Society, on the history of the West that he taught from the historical standpoint. So those two courses ganged up on me and changed me completely. But Nyhart is in there. Jack Buck is in there. Um, A.T. Still, the founder of, the, of osteopathic medicine, is in there. Dale Carnegie, who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, Rose Philippine Duchesne, who was the first uh, saint from west of the Mississippi River. She's in there. Uh, Josephine Baker, who was a great entertainer in the 1920s up to the 1960s, who was uh, an African-American who was born in St. Louis, but because of her race, couldn't really work in St. Louis on a broad scale. She went to Paris and became the dark star of the Folies Bergère, part of the French underground during World War II, ran an orphanage after the war that took in children of all races and all nationalities. And she was one of the first African-American celebrities to stand up with Martin Luther King during the civil rights struggle and encourage others to get in. So those are just some, and people are just regularly amazed that these names they've heard of are actually fellow Missourians. Is there anybody you think that should be added or oh, that a lot you of people. suggest to be added? Every, every time there's a new Speaker of the House, I send them a long letter that lists a long list of people that I think should be in there. T.S. Eliot is one. Um, oh, it's, it's such a long list. I can't really remember all of them, but, uh, we've got, we're a little bit heavy right now on, um, on movie and television stars. And so we need to get more literary, political and people and, uh, some people who are not alive in terms of politics. We've got some living politicians who are in there and, uh, we've since the Capitol Commission has since asserted some authority and tightened up the, the requirements that you don't put living politicians in there. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole list of, uh, of people that, that I think should be in there because of what they've done. And they're, a lot of them are pretty well-known folks. And if I had my list in front of you, we'd spend the next five minutes reading the list. <laughs> now, lastly, as someone who has traveled throughout the country and certainly someone who spent your own time in the Capitol building, what other state Capitol buildings have you visited and how would you compare them, if you can, to Missouri State Capitol? Uh, I don't think you can really compare them because of the quality of the artwork we have and because because our our commission coordinated what the artwork was going to be about. I've been to a lot of capitals that certainly don't have much artwork to speak of. Arkansas is the most boring capital I've ever been in, to be very blunt about it. Uh, New York, the New York capital in Albany is just a mess. And our capital commission board that oversaw construction of our capital visited Albany just 
when they were touring some capitals to get ideas, they toured Albany and they, they basically said the New York capital represents everything wrong about a capital that can be wrong. The New York, New York capital, I think, had four different architects, each designing a different floor. The interior is dark. Um, there's carvings that have nothing to do with the city of New York. In fact, I think one of the carvings on, on one of the stairways is of uh, one of the architect's children. And so, you know, it's just it's dark, it's big, it's ugly, and uh, terrible. <laughs> and um, uh, New Mexico's capital is is a, is a modern building. It's a round building, doesn't have a dome on it per se. They call it the Roundhouse down there, but it's very modern. It's kind of uh, shaped in the tradition of the of the of the Anasazi Kivas, the worship centers that you find in cliff dwellings. And so they've they've done a great job on the heritage of that, and it's very nicely done. I like it a lot. Uh, my native state of Illinois, its capital was done in the 1880s. So that's a 30-year-older building, and you see a 30-year-older theory of architecture for state buildings. has very little artwork in it. Um, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, they're pretty big buildings, and, but, and they do have their artwork, but it's mostly symbolic artwork, and there's no central theme in it. The, the capital in, in Kansas is nice. It has a, a, a splendid mural by John Stuart Curry, the famous one that has John Brown um, in it. Uh, but it it lacks the 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 great diversity and the great quantity of art that we have. Plus, it's Kansas, you know, which I don't really I, I don't really have that much against Kansas because my parents and grandparents and great grandparents all lived out there. My great grandparents homesteaded in Kansas when there were still Indians around. But um, Colorado uh, has uh, has some artwork. Its main claim to fame is that there's a step that marks 5,280 feet. So it's your mile high when you're in the Capitol. I've been in, um, I've been in Arizona's Capitol. Arizona came into the union now in 1912. So they're a young state. And so their original capital is still there, but it's a museum. And they have a, a glass and, and, and steel building behind it that is the executive building. And then the House and the Senate have their own separate buildings on either side of a plaza that leads up to the old Capitol. So the old Capitol is kind of a museum. And there's a fellow in there, the last time I was out there, there's a fellow there who does a living history portrayal of, of Arizona's first governor, George Wiley Paul Hunt, who was from Randolph County, Missouri. He was elected seven times, and apparently he was a real character. I've been in the in the, in the California capital, back when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, I was in the California capital. It's big. It has a gold dome, but it can't compare to Missouri in terms of the artistic excellence. I've been in Georgia's capital. I've been in Mississippi's capital, Kentucky's capital, Indiana's capital, Ohio's capital, which doesn't have a dome, and it's really not a very distinguished capital. Oklahoma's capital I've been in. Um, so Nebraska, you know, Nebraska is a big, tall office building with kind of a little gold dome sitting on top of it, but it has some very nice mosaics inside, but it can't match its artistic. North Dakota's capital is, I think, an office building. Um, so I've been in I've been in a majority of the capitals, but nothing. I don't think anything. This isn't just me saying this as a as a Missourian, but I have yet to see a capital that can really match Jefferson City for its architectural elegance and its artistic excellence, as I like to put it. Pennsylvania's is very nice, but it's very big. And sometimes people look at a big capital that's nicely maintained and nicely kept, and they think, oh, this is really great. Well, all capitals have at least one or two rooms that are great rooms, House and Senate chambers mostly. But top to bottom, I've never been in a capital that can match ours. Well, that concludes this week's episode. Thanks for being with us, uh, Mr. Pretty. I'm glad to have done it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. 
Benton's Perilous Visions is an exhibit of Thomas Hartman artwork from World War II that showcases the artist's interpretation of the anxiety, horror, grief, and resolve that permeated American society during the war years. This exhibit will be on display in the main gallery of the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center until spring 2019. If you care about researching and preserving your family's history, the Historical Society is offering two events in mid-October that might be of interest to you. On October 16th, the Society is collaborating with the Historical Society of Marys County for a program on preserving family history at the Marys County Courthouse in Vienna. On October 18th, Katie Seal, senior archivist at the Society's Rollo Research Center, is hosting an event in on beginning genealogy at the Scenic River Library in Owensville. If you live in southeast Missouri, please visit the Historical Society's Cape Girardeau Research Center for its open house on October 26th. This event is a great way to familiarize yourself with the center's material documenting southeast Missouri history. The Cape Girardeau Research Center is located in Pacific Hall on the campus of Southeast Missouri State University. Finally, register now to attend the Center for Missouri Studies Fall Lecture at the Courtyard by Marriott in Columbia on October 13th. This year's event features Pulitzer Prize-winning author Caroline Frazier, who will talk about her recent book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. To register and learn more about these events, visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.